Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode with Brendan Graham Dempsey, who I consider to be one of the leading philosophers in metamodernism right now, I want to make you aware that this episode, Brendan and I had a two-hour-long conversation, and it was fantastic. Uh, What I decided to do with it, though, is to break it up into two sections. The first block of the conversation contains kind of the core essentials to helping you understand metamodernism. Uh, We've, of course, I've done a lecture series on metamodernism that I would encourage you to go back and to listen to that as well. But then the second segment of the conversation is going to be available to patrons only, those who are supporting on Patreon, or if you want to become a member of my YouTube channel, I now have a YouTube membership available, it would be available there as well. So you can go over to my Patreon page and you'll be able to access the full extended conversation, which includes like an additional 35 minutes of Brendan and I going back and forth, I, I think in a healthy way on maybe some differences of opinion on what faith and religion is going to look like in the meta-modern frame and what we might both think are healthy, maybe differing, slightly different perspectives on what a, a healthy pursuit of God, a healthy pursuit of the transcendent looks like. So again, all of that is going to be available to those supporting on Patreon, or if you want to become a member on YouTube, I've been doing a lot more on my YouTube channel, put out a video last week doing some exploration of the brand new Godzilla movie, Godzilla Minus One, the Japanese Toho Studios Godzilla Minus One, which I actually think is one of the best movies of the year. And so far, that's got like 80,000 views in a week. That's pretty abnormal for me. So that kind of stuff, I can't do it without your support on Patreon. So whether or not you want this bonus stuff or you just want to say, hey, I appreciate this stuff doesn't have ads in it and I want to support your work, Paul, whatever your motivations are, you can click the link in the description below to become one of the first 200 patrons. We're still shy of that 200 patron goal to end the year. So please consider doing that and then you'll get access to the full unedited episode featuring Brendan Graham Dempsey. Hey, everyone, welcome to another episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. Today, I'm joined by Brendan Graham Dempsey, who uh, I have to confess, for those of you that have gone through my lecture series on metamodernism, I'm indebted to. I referenced uh, Brendan's work quite a bit. He's got a great uh, series of YouTube videos out there, but not just YouTube videos. He's also a writer and author, and he has written a seven-volume series called Metamodern Spirit, the Metamodern Spirituality Series, and most recently, Metamodernism, or The Cultural Logic of Cultural Logics. And so, Brendan, I really do consider to be, uh, maybe he wouldn't think of himself this way, but I will uh, heap some praise on him. I consider Brendan to be one of the leading voices addressing what's happening in our cultural moment right Right now with the meta modern shift and so many of you have been really fascinated by this topic and subject matter so i thought i want to bring on an expert i don't claim to be an expert but i'm, I'm going to bring on an expert here to discuss what's happening many of you are feeling like as you're engaging with storytelling and the arts and you're seeing these spiritual shifts happening these religious shifts happening you're going what is going on. And so Brendan is here today to help maybe try to put a name to some of it, help us understand where we've come from, where he maybe predicts this is all headed. So Brendan, thanks for being here today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm excited. I, I've I've been watching your videos, really enjoyed the conversations you're having with people like uh, John Verveke and Paul Vanderclay. And uh, yeah, just think you're uh, putting out some excellent content. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what we uh, dig into. Yeah. Okay. So for me, Brendan, I, I don't think I had a name for this bef- and, um, right away. And uh, it took me a while to give a name to what I felt I was picking up on, in particular in pop culture, noticing like sh- aesthetic shifts, shifts in storytelling. I have, I think, first found myself intrigued by what seems like a shift from Charles Taylor's secular age into what I consider to be like a kind of a new epoch. We're like on the bleeding edge of it, what I've called the post-secular age. We're also emerging out of the what I think is probably the death of the new atheist movement into this new era in the West. And then I started noticing this shift in storytelling, aesthetics, the arts, and I found philosophers and people like yourself describing this after postmodernism shift as metamodernism. When and where did you first become aware that something was shifting in the philosophical landscape, the worldview landscape, the religious, the cultural stories that we're telling? When did you first become aware of it? And uh, maybe what were some of the things that first tipped you off to, oh, something different than postmodernism is happening here? Yeah. So for me personally, I would say I, I discovered metamodernism, which is this term that people are talking about to give a name to some of these shifts. Um, I discovered that back in 2013. And to be honest, for me, it was, it was in the context of really seeing still a lot of very much kind of the postmodern zeitgeist, um, uh, all around me in the arts. Um, I, I was raised on, you know, very postmodern films and television and whatnot, um, as well as, you know, there was kind of an interesting dance between that stuff coming in, but also I was raised in a very um, Christian family growing up, uh, rather conservative Christian family. So th- those things kind of mixed in an interesting way. Um, but it was, it was out of my sort of uh, dissatisfaction um and kind of a disaffectedness with a lot of the contemporary zeitgeist that I went looking in the first place to see what people were were talking about that might be out there that was beginning to emerge. I mean, I was, you know, from a, a young age, actually really interested in the films of, say, Wes Anderson um, and uh, some other interesting stuff that was starting to emerge uh, that had a slightly different kind of vibe to it. Uh, but I certainly didn't have any kind of a, a name or a rubric to use. Um, so it was around 2013 when uh, I was uh, I was traveling. I was living in Europe at the time and um, was trying to just make sense around uh, the aesthetic shifts that we would really now call po- uh, postmodernism, like the, the shift that that had become very uh, just permeated society in terms of um, yeah, the aesthetic register that that was operating with that so-called cultural logic um, and seeing, you know, is this is this where this ends? Is this where this all, you know, culminates or or is there something past the postmodern? Um, and uh, that's how I discovered the the uh, work of these Dutch cultural theorists who are talking about metamodernism. And what's been partly fascinating about tracking this is that um, it's been over the past, gosh, what, 10 years, right? 
um, that seeing what was sort of initially kind of hinted at or beginning to be described at that point has really kind of flowered and come to fruition in a big way in the last decade. So, um, yeah, for me, it wasn't so much looking around, seeing big changes and then being like, what's this called? It's more like getting intimations of some shifts and changes and myself being kind of an evidence of sort of like a, uh, a an exhaustedness with postmodernism and a looking beyond it and then finding this thing and then seeing it really kind of, um, you know, increasingly accurately describe the kinds of shifts uh, uh, since then. So, yeah, that was my experience with with the term. You mentioned already here a couple times, I think you just used the word exhaustion about mm. the way that the, the postmodern frame was impacting you. And I think as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 40, much of my formative teenage years, like you growing up in a very conservative, uh, evangelical context, I was still engaging with the broader, I mean, we had our evangelical subculture with all its DC talk and tooth and nail record bands and things like that. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you probably got into <clears throat> as well. Oh yeah. But within that subculture, of course, we're plugged into a larger culture, the, mm -hmm. um, the, the culture, the, 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 the metaculture over the, t over top of that. And of course, much of what was going on in my formative heyday were movies like fight club, mm. um, even, you know, in, in many ways, like Seinfeld was a, a shift away from modernist mm -hmm. forms of comedy into something that was self-aware was, uh, you know, I think Larry David famously had a line on the set that, um, ev you know, we're going to make sure that there's no hugging and nobody learns anything in each episode, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Which, which was such a, like a critique, um, maybe a comedic sort of nihilism, but a mm -hmm. critique of the sitcom genre. Mm -hmm. So I very much can identify with that. But when you talk about it leaving you feeling exhausted, um, can you put your finger maybe on what was producing that sense of exhaustion or dissatisfaction with that worldview, the worldview that was supposed to be the critique really of all worldviews? Yeah. Uh, I mean, at the aesthetic level, there's just a sense of, um, you know, it, it becomes a tired trick after a while, right? It's just you've seen it so many times. And once you start to have some language for it, you're like, oh, yeah, there that is again. <laughs> um, so that's largely what I mean by exhaustion, just the sense of like, um, you know, oh, this again. Um, and by this, I mean, things like, you know, um, you walk into an art gallery and there's like, I don't know, uh, glitter and, and paint smeared on the ground. And then there's like a little artist statement that's like, you know, untitled number 18, you know, and, and the little artist statement says something like, this piece seeks to problematize our relationship with that, 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 that. And, um, you know, when that stuff first starts to show up, you might be like, oh, this is kind of interesting, right? But like the opposite of interesting is boring. And <laughs> so what I think happened with a lot of postmodern art was it just reached this point of saturation in the culture that it wasn't interesting anymore, which is sort of its claim to fame. Um, and instead, I, it was just increasingly boring. And so um, that's that's mostly what I mean by exhaustion. So there's there's that, though there is a worldview component to that as well, um, in the sense of to the degree to which those sorts of aesthetic strategies are connected to the sort of broader, you know, uh, worldview of sort of yeah, nihilism, cynicism, skepticism, right? Um, there's a 
there is a point in which that is itself kind of a tiredness. Um, you know, a lot of the things that characterize the postmodern period or its, its sense of an end, uh, I think Jameson described that as, right? Everyone was talking about the, oh, the end of art and the end of this and the end of the, end of the death of the author and the end of history and all, everything was ending. <laughs> and so everyone was sort of exhausted about everything. It was sort of a cultural logic of exhaustion. And a lot of the kind of uh, aesthetic strategies, I think, reflected that. So you get exhausted by exhaustion. And uh, that's a kind of meta move, I suppose, that sort of uh, starts to gesture towards, um, you know, what's beyond that? What's, what, what happens when you start becoming skeptical of skepticism and a bit cynical towards the cynics, right? Uh, it's sort of inevitable that you, you're probably going to lead towards something a bit more affirmational, positive, um, exuberant, uh, idealistic, et cetera. So, yeah. How do you understand, and I've talked about this in, in my series, but I'd, I think it'd be helpful to hear another vantage point on this. How do you understand the shift from modernism into an appetite for that sort of aesthetic art and storytelling? What do you think the primary factors were that mm. led from that modern shift to the postmodern shift to to make it probably something at some point which had some some value i know i i, I want to yeah. be clear because there's a mm. lot of conversation uh particularly in the sorts of internet spaces that might be adjacent to your work and our work um where there's a lot of kind of postmodern boogeyman stuff out mm -hmm. there yeah right yeah. which is like this was the the worst thing to have ever come about and it was all because of this weird cultural marxism whatever right, <laughs> whatever right. that means was there any validity to the initial shift from modernism what were the postmodern storytellers artists and thinkers what were they trying to grasp at yeah. and uh, do you see there being any continuing value for any of what postmodernism was grasping at that you see this needs to continue and yeah. In the metamodern shift, it seems to be continuing to be held on to as something valuable. I, I think it's a it's a great question. It's an essential question, and I feel like you won't really get metamodernism if you don't get that that's an important uh, thing to be asking. So uh, I think you're exactly right. There's a lot of easy uh, boogeymanning and strawmanning of of postmodernism. Um, and to be fair, these are big terms that are supposed to encapsulate a whole bunch of different things, right? So a lot of the time, I think we're often just talking past each other. Um, and so we should be aware up front that like these are big categories, they're fuzzy, people will be using these terms slightly differently. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, if, as I'm sure we'll get into in a minute, if metamodernism, which is what comes after postmodernism, is doing so... Uh, by means still of postmodernism, then we have to take seriously the notion that something from this uh, reaction carries forward. Um, and as for what that is, um, there's so many angles you can take on this. Uh, and I think they're all relevant. They're all valid. And I don't want to, um, you know, get too much into the weeds or, or, or too much over people's heads and try to deal with too much here. But I'll just name a few components of it, right? There's um, uh, at least, let's say, a a historical cultural moment, um, which uh, I think really pushes us in this direction. And it largely comes after World War II. Um, so let's step back a little bit, right? Um, you know, the modern, of course, is in itself kind of responding to the traditional worldview and a religious worldview. And a lot of what had come uh, as sort of the uh, emergence of modernity and modernism, it was about sort of trying to uh, 
trying to, you could call this sort of the modern project, right? Like create something after the dissolution uh, and the rejection of maybe more traditional religious narratives, right? So you get new kinds of grand narratives about reality, that um, that it's about progress, that there's this evolutionary direction that's sort of leaning cultures towards, you know, new heights. You see this, and then this glorification of technology gets wrapped up with this. So the modern is about the new and the, and the novel and the technological utopia that we're sort of all gloriously heading towards. And and, um, and, you know, and, and sort of providing a new grand narrative of history that um, is not the sort of kind of classic Christian narrative that had been, you know, the one to prevail throughout the entire, you know, uh, medieval period, essentially. Now it's a different narrative and it's rooted in the this world and all those things I just said. And um, I think that once you see what happens with, war with World War II and how it just sort of just cuts the legs out from under that. I think that's really important for understanding the rise of postmodernism because a, a number of things happen there. Um, basically this, this utopian aspirational dream vision of, of history, you know, uh, doesn't lead to utopia. It leads to the gulag and to, uh, you know, to Auschwitz essentially. And so, um, you know, and, and technology starts being very seen, very much clearly seen for the ways that it destroys as well as creates, the way that it alienates as well as, you know, brings people together. Um, and so, yeah, really just the, the whole period from World War I to World War II, which is really sort of a big, uh, colossal one war with sort of an, uh, you know, uh, interim period. Halftime. <laughs> yeah, basically. And it's just this, it's just this utter destruction of the old world. And, 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 um, I think that that creates a sense of disenchantment with the entire modern project and, uh, forces people to reevaluate, re um, you know, the ideals of liberalism and enlightenment values and supposedly this emancipatory project that modernity was, it seemed to lead to this iron cage. So you get after World War II, people who are critical of these sorts of things, uh, critical of the ideals and all that. And um, yeah, that leads to uh, a, a, an attitude of skepticism. It leads to an attitude of cynicism, right? It's sort of like, oh, whose big narrative are you pushing at me today, right? You know, it's like, we've yes. been here before. There's this, um, yeah, there's this profound uh, distrust or, you know, hermeneutics of suspicion, right? So there, it makes sense that people like Freud and Nietzsche and Marx come in um, to to try to, you know. But even, of course, and this is where part of this issue around, like, the cultural Marxism bit becomes really problematic is that like um, even Marx had a grand narrative, right? So what's yes. so interesting about this postmodern moment is like, no, even the Marxists are out the window because they're pushing some story. And so, you know, once you've eschewed grand story progress too. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just, so it's you taking, know, right. It's taking that Hegelian yeah. dialectic and, and moving it into a materialist frame. Yeah. And and certainly a lot of those ideas had a direct link to what you see happen in World War II and then, of course, the aftermath of the Cold War. So you get, I think, a profound disenchantment, disillusionment with this whole way of looking at the world. And there's a kind of self-protective element that goes with that as well. It's sort of like, all right, I won't believe anything, you know. And so nihilism, of course, is sort of a natural product of that. So anyway, there's a there's a kind of cultural historical moment that sort of makes sense for why those ideas would start to be on the rise. Um, there's also, you know, uh, technological things that happen. Um, there's, uh, you could say, sort of evolutionary complexification, developmental angles that can be brought to this narrative. I could go on and on. So there's, there's really a whole set of things that kind of explain why all of a sudden you start seeing this emergence of these ideas. Um, but 
maybe more importantly, though, um, to get to the heart of your question, which is like what sort of carries forward from that, uh, that, that is of value. And, um, I will say this, that like a big thing that, that these critiques did was they forced us to be more sort of, um, you know, uh, demanding of what we took as true, right? It's sort of like, uh, you know, there's this, there's this critique of authority and this, uh, these appeals to, you know, oh, well, this is the story, this is the narrative, or this is the, the, you know, the political, um, you know, message or what have you. There was sort of this sort of standing back and being like, well, no, we're not going to just, you know, buy whatever bill of goods you're selling. We're going to really interrogate them. Ideally, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so one of the positive things that does come from that is a critique of certain modern presumptions that had been taken for granted, which are now start to be sort of exploded, right? Because once you start asking, well, for who is this story, you know, uh, serving or, you know, or, 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 or what, you know, to whose benefit does this particular uh, message um, uh, work, then you're starting to become more aware of, you know, the exclusionary dynamics that go into selling stories and, and grand narratives and sort of like who's being left out, who's being oppressed, who's being uh, used and exploited. So these issues become uh, very salient to postmodern critiques of um, of things. And basically, in the absence of this is the true story of history, all you've kind of got then is critiques of power and privilege to be able to fill in that gap. Um, and so some of that's some of that is legitimately very valuable. I mean, we need to be doing asking those kinds of questions. Um, and I think that the things like the civil rights movement uh, movements that come in the sixties, um, you know, are a big product of, you know, th- those cultural forces shifting um, really much of the kind of cultural uh, and sexual liberation and, and, and revolution uh, kind of is a product of some of these, uh, you know, presumed, axioms of sort of modern thought being sort of exploded and, 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 and having new opportunities to be critiqued and whatnot. So anyway, I could say a lot more about that, but I guess I would just say that I think we should be asking more about um, systems, right? Uh, what are the mm-hmm. contexts that we're operating in? Let's see the things that we th- were using to make sense of reality and examine those, right? So there's this moving back and stepping back from the ideologies or the frameworks that you're using to make sense of reality and interrogate interrogating those. And uh, all of that I find to be very useful. Um, and so when you start getting into metamodernism, there's certain aspects in which uh, we can't just throw that stuff out. We shouldn't. Uh, there's there's profound insights to be gained from uh, appreciating that we are in social contexts, that humans do a lot to uh, construct those contexts, and that we shouldn't just take a sort of natural givens, things that we are enculturated into, and we should interrogate them. Uh, and that really starts to set you up into a new place where you're able to see cultural logics as, you know, objects of analysis and not just things that you see the world through. And then that can really, you know, start to uh, put you in a position where you're, uh, where you have a cultural logic of cultural logics, which is kind of what mm-hmm. the, the book is about. The, the core of cores, right? I don't know mm. if you saw this or have seen this trend uh, on YouTube and TikTok called core core. No, I haven't. So, Okay, so this is really fascinating, uh, and I think this this has connection to the aesthetic interests of metamodernism. So, uh, side tangent here, and I want to come back to some of the stuff you said about sure. postmodernism and, and, and connect it here too. But the the core core movement is this again, like a, a 
really a vibe as my kids would say <laughs> it's a it's a aesthetic vibe that gets at um so you might have genres on TikTok and YouTube, like YouTube uh, reels, for example, or YouTube mm -hmm. shorts uh, of these uh, different cores. You know, uh, I'm going to butcher some of the other ones like uh, home core or these oh, different yeah, cores yeah. that are trying. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the Cottage core, core core. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And of course, in, in, in music, you've you had hard, hardcore music, metal core. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? what's at the core. And so mm -hmm. core core is trying to get at like, what is at the core of cores? And these yeah. are really fascinating vignettes into, huh. I think like the psyche of Gen Z right now, mm. which tends to, uh, from my vantage point, address the meaning crisis differently than millennials and Gen Xers mm. did. Mm. Many of much of which I think has been marked by uh, a sort of like comedic nihilism mm. where um, Gen Z is much more, this is when I saw, I noticed a shift happening, Brendan. It was probably my last few years of teaching in a classroom. The biggest thing I started to notice was how differently Gen Z was engaging the subject of September 11th from mm. old millennials like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I noticed that they were comfortable, not only comfortable, but like they loved sharing like 9-11 memes, mm. you know, and, and getting humor out of mm. them. Mm -hmm. It was like a strange form of gallows humor. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. that would be almost like a sacred, untouchable subject to yeah. millennials and sure. Gen Xers in particular. Like that was so devastating. And I noticed boys in particular, 17, 18 years old, like mm -hmm. passing along 9-11 memes, which I like found offensive, but it was kind of their way of processing the mm. the anguish of, of living in this particular moment. But core core, these videos are often set to uh, like just a really uh, they seem to be not coherent scenes spliced together but there's mm. a general aesthetic or vibe mm -hmm. of melancholy mm. uh very very depressing underneath that mm. and you might see spliced together scenes from kind of these uh like sigma male anti-hero figures that you mm -hmm. see in like the literally me videos out there like a patrick bateman and mm -hmm. scenes from those sorts of movies but it's mm -hmm. set to it, it's fascinating because you're talking about the cultural logics of cultural logic mm -hmm. like what's at the core of cores and yeah. um to me i see that connecting to what seems to be happening for those of us who postmodernism maybe was our native tongue and so all we knew was primarily irony, cynicism. I mean this at a folk level, as you mentioned already, mm -hmm. postmodernism is far too complex, but folk postmodernism, you know, mm -hmm. the fight club postmodernism, mm -hmm. the maybe the Rick and Morty postmodernism, the uh that that genre. Seeing at the end of that people feeling that they have in some sense taken the sledgehammer of deconstruction to their overarching stories to their guiding stories deconstruct them all for many people and uh, you know i don't know much of your personal story but i'm sure there are there's a sense in which we can both identify with the disillusionment that many mm. people our age experienced with um traditional religion mm -hmm. and feeling as if there has been a use of those stories to continue to victimize people Mm. And when you combine that postmodern critique, that overarching stories, mask a play for power to continue to oppress and victimize. And then, then you've actually seen mm. firsthand uh, improper, moral, immoral behavior. Mm. You've seen scandals. It seems to only strengthen that case. But I think from my vantage point that 
that exhaustion that we feel at the end of that still leads us to this deep desire to actually live in some sort of story. Mm. Um, how is the meta modern shift attempting to address that desire, that exhaustion, and that need to live in some sort of story that provides positive reconstruction, mm. that provides you a, a way of actually speaking sincerely without throwing out all of what have been really valid critiques mm -hmm. of postmodernism. Um, how does it use the language and aesthetic of postmodernism to attempt to inhabit a meaningful story, to say mm -hmm. things that are true, good, and beautiful once again? How do you see that working yeah. from your vantage point? Yeah, well, I think that what you're naming is like a really significant uh, dynamic uh, of metamodern thought. Um, and I think once you see that that kind of thing is going on, uh, that I think is sort of the answer to the question, but it's sort of like it happens in different ways, right? So if broadly speaking, this postmodern move is to deconstruct and to, uh, you know, subject to interrogation and uh, hermeneutics of suspicion, uh, and it can do that in multiple ways, um, including, you know, well, well, we'll leave it there. So like, that's one thing that it's doing, but it does differently. I think the meta modern move is sort of a, an attempt to say, okay, yes. Okay. Now what let's reconstruct and let's try to, as you say, maybe live in a story while owning it's a story or what have you, mm -hmm. um, and recognizing that that happens in different ways. So, um, one way that I see that happening is in, um, well, Okay, so th there are there are different instances. I'll use one as an example. One is uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, um, which is a kind of explicitly meta modern work of art. The directors, uh, Daniels, said as much. They're like, "Yep, we're aiming for like a meta modern thing here." Um, and uh, if you watch that movie, it's all about meaning. It's about nihilism. All right, it's about. Um, how do we make sense and purpose of our lives in the context of this infinite multiverse in which anything could be anything? Um, and uh, one sort of the kernel of the response there is comes at the end of the movie, which is something like nothing matters be given that therefore everything can matter. Um, and some people might find that rather unsatisfying. I wouldn't entirely blame them if they did so, but that is one thing that you see. And there are elements actually speaking of Rick and Morty in which that shows up. It's sort of like, Hey, no one's supposed to be here on purpose. Uh, there's no plan. Just, you know, come and sit and hang out with your family sort of a thing. Right. So there's this move towards, um, uh, which you see also at the end of, of everything everywhere all at once, which is like, I, the, the the main character chooses to be with this particular family at this particular laundromat in this vast galaxy of universes because you know this is her world essentially so there's a i think a move towards um sort of reaffirming the value of sort of local meaning making and sort of recognizing that things could be an infinite number of other ways, um, that there's no sort of foundational ground, and yet we can affirm the value of our lived context. You could say we can choose the story and then put a lot of weight onto that story. Uh, Very because existentialist move. It is, it is. It's, um, it's a, I think there, it even goes a bit further than the existentialist to the degree that, I don't know, I get the impression from a lot of existentialists thought that there's a sense that there's still something inherently of value in making meaning, that somehow like the meaning making thing is the thing. But in this, it's sort of like, nope, even that is just sort of, you know, you can deconstruct that, but we hmm. still need to do these things. So there's an element to that. I see that narrative crop up in metamodern spaces. Um, I see... Uh, 
kind of similarly, this sort of approach uh, around owning the social constructedness of things, but again, sort of affirming that, well, this is the condition of all knowledge. So this is just kind of how all knowledge works. And so, you know, I grew up in this story and you grew up in this story. I think I've seen you mention some of these kinds of uh, frameworks here in, in some stuff you, you've said. Um, and there's some recognition that that's how things work and then just sort of owning and accepting it and then kind of living into that story. Um, that's another approach. Um, uh, I'm very interested in trying to find, um, sort of places where meaning actually does have some kind of a, how would I put this? Um, it kind of grounds out in some significant way still. So it's not just a choose your own adventure. It's like, a, oh no, like this is, this is kind of how this works. Um, even though it admits of a lot of uh, variability. So like, for example, mm -hmm. very kind of simplistically if you want to say that like older forms of meaning were like meaning just has objective existence it just is right like things mean maybe that has a very kind of naive traditional religious kind of flavor to it um and then sort of modernity comes around and it's sort of like well, wait a second we look for meaning in the world and we don't find it there therefore meaning isn't objective it's actually just purely subjective right uh yeah. which is an idea that i think postmodernism takes even further in some of the ways that we're talking about just like yeah we all just live in our own story um, there's a third answer to that, which is that meaning actually is real, but it's neither purely objective or subjective. It arises in this sort of dynamic transjective relationship between, you know, an entity and its environment. Uh, John yeah, Ravakey right. kind of talks more about, about that, Brendan, because I find that fascinating because part of my vantage point on this would be to say that, you know, part of the, 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 the modern shift was uh, critiquing traditional metaphysics and then as we move further away uh, in the epistemological pro problem of how do I know anything at all, metaphysics seems to play less and less of a role in philosophy and practically mm -hmm. in people's lives where it's like we we can ground this in phenomenology or other, other places. Mm -hmm. But whether that's sort of an agnosticism about metaphysical claims where it's like, how could we ever know any of this at all mm -hmm. to a more postmodern distrust of metaphysical claims? So help me understand a little bit more when you're saying like, you're not satisfied from your vantage point, you're not satisfied with a sort of like Sisyphusian mm. <laughs> approach to just say, all right, I got to push this boulder up, up the mountain once mm -hmm. again, but I can choose to make it valuable by just simply deciding in this mm -hmm. internal state, right. the gods can't control my internal state. So therefore I can decide that this is valuable. Mm -hmm. Are you saying you don't, you, you're not satisfied with that. And you'd like, you, you feel there needs to be some other uh, grounding beyond the self. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. are you saying there's a, a, a search for that? Do you, do you feel like both for you individually, but also mm -hmm. within maybe the broader meta modern shift are people, kind of going back to metaphysics for that? Are they turning, what are they turning to, to find that, yeah. that maybe that grounding outside of the self? Yeah. Yeah. No. And this, I think is, uh, this is the thing that so many people are grappling with right now in a, in a million different ways. Right. And, um, uh, so, all right. Yeah. Uh, so the danger as I see it would be, um, that we do just sort of like become aware of all these dynamics around the the modern turn and the postmodern turn and then say, ah, but we still need stories or something like that. And then just sort of kind of, we don't carry the ideas forward. We kind of just then conclude we have to sort of fall back on something, you know, more uh, kind of 
existentially primitive to how we were, you know, uh, enculturated or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that unsatisfactory. Um, I also find um, sort of other approaches that do something very similar uh, to be missing something really crucial. And so I guess I'll just say the way I look at it, and this is informed by folks I just mentioned, like um, John Verveke. And, uh, you know, there's some great conversations between John and uh, Greg Enriquez, who has a wonderful uh, sort of uh, meta theory, um, unifying theory uh, of knowledge. Um, People like Bobby Azarian, who are all operating in this metamodern space. I think that it, there's a, a shared uh, solution space to these sorts of issues. And this is how I see it. It's something like, um, there's an entity in a context and in order for it to continue to exist, certain conditions need to be met. Uh, you could say, um, and, uh, and those are real, right? Like, um, I can't, I mean, unless you want to be totally, solipsistic or skeptical to some extreme degree and just deny the existence of, I don't know, anything, any kind of world or something, right? You'd have to admit that like, yeah, no one, even the most ardent sort of relativistic postmodernist anti-realist is going to step outside while it's raining and just say, it's not raining. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that doesn't fly. So if it is raining, then you have to consider the fact of like, okay, well, I'm, this is going to make me cold and miserable and, you know, probably I might get a cold or whatever. So you have to like do things in relationship to reality in order to continue to uh, successfully be an entity in the world, right? So, um, so you're talking like emergence and emanation in some sense, Yeah, well, right? certainly uh, there's an emergent component to this and the emergence emanation bit, maybe I can come back to that and see if we could plug okay. it into that kind of a framework. Um, but the, the basic idea um, that I find really helpful um, can actually ground out in some things uh, like as fundamental as like information theory thermodynamics, uh, where you've got, okay, I am an informational entity. In order to continue to exist successfully, I need to be processing information about my environment. um, And I need to do that accurately. And if that information actually is helping me maintain my viability, then that information is meaningful to me, like full stop. Like that's just, you know, someone can't be like, I'm just going to go walk off a cliff, you know, and deny that that it's like, nope, you won't be around anymore, right? So the knowledge of if I walk off this cliff, I will no longer be around, that's meaningful. And at a certain point, you just can't um, uh, kind of deconstruct that anymore. You can't kind of, uh, you know, interpretively, hermeneutically work your way around, ah, but it could mean this or it could mean that, right? Like there's a, to the degree that information about the environment affects the viability of the continued persistence of a thermodynamic entity in context, that's um, now, you know, now what becomes really interesting about that, though, is that that's a very crude, simplistic notion of meaning. I mean, you know, the kinds of meaning that we really mean when we talk about meaning are things about like, what's the meaning of my life and relationships and all this stuff, right? So there's, you've got to get from this sort of very simplistic notion of meaning that you get from thermodynamics and information theory to the kinds of existential, philosophical, spiritual, religious meanings that we're talking about. And so then you have to appreciate that there's a complexification process between the two. Um, and, uh, and that's where things really start to get interesting when you can situate yourself as the long end product of billions of years of complexification where information and entities sort of have been in this continual dance leading to increasing information, increasing complexity of organisms, increasing complexity of the relationship between the two so that meaning itself evolves and complexifies. And that's kind of the stuff I'm exploring at the moment, which again, dovetails 
very much with a certain kind of strand of, of metamodern thought. But it's to, to ground this all back. This is this is the same. We're trying to resolve the same issue here. Right. Which is like, how do we make meaning in this world that we supposedly uh, have come to realize is fully deconstructible and totally constructed and whatnot? Um, and, and are uh, we simply making it or are we discovering it? I yeah. think that's an important question, too. Right. Yeah, I think that a lot of what is coming out of the metamodern discourse space is um, taking these seeming binaries and then realizing the way that it's not either or, that there's always sort of this both and component to this. Um, and so uh, I think that once you have that in mind, you can look back and see how a lot of our going astray on a lot of these issues has come about because we absolutized a particular way of thinking about something, right? So like you go back and and it's like, oh, something is true. And that's just, it's just true from the beginning of time. It has a priori, you know, reality to it. And, you know, there's some platonic ideal that exists in this other world, right? And it's like, and then over time, that all gets sort of critiqued and deconstructed. But then you get the sort of Kantian thing of like, ah, no, it's just the mind, right? And the and reality conforms to the mind. And then you get this radical relativism and this sort of like total, you know, the potential for total social constructivism. It's just sort of whatever the mind thinks is real. And both of these are very extreme positions, right? It's sort of like, well, maybe both of these are going on simultaneously. Like maybe there are real things, but the mind needs to construct its ability to be able to understand and relate to them. And, you know, there are frameworks for, for thinking in these terms, like Piaget's um, constructivism and uh, the whole tradition of developmental psychology is like this continual equilibration between entity and field um, mm -hmm. coming to learn each other more and more so that it's both there's a reality and the mind constructs uh, or participates in constructing its relationship to that reality. Both of those are true. We don't have to choose between them. So I think a, a lot of the metamodern conversation is like really trying to find those points of synthesis, which is often a, a synthesis between modern and postmodern uh, extremes. Hmm. I see what you're talking about here, Brendan, is also having a point of connection to what maybe both modernism and postmodernism were doing, especially in American culture with the elevation of the, the atomized individual, mm. right? So if in modernism, the individual, well, you know, we could take this all the way back to the Protestant Reformation where, mm. where Luther trusts his gut over and against the hierarchical institutions of the past, mm. which were mm -hmm. the place in which you did have access to the truth. That was the narrative, right? Yeah. So the rejection of locating it through uh, the hierarchical institutions and in the individual gets us obviously to Descartes. But then the postmodern impulse has been to um, not only critique, you know, not, we're not just doing like Descartes, I think, therefore I am, but mm -hmm. there's also the sense in which uh, because all narratives are a play for power that maybe, especially as this takes shape in American culture, that I can author my own narrative. I can radically self-author in a way that I, there is no necessarily external reality to which I have to conform to. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I'm trying to conform to, and maybe even conform the world outside of me mm -hmm. to actually match yes. what I believe my internal state is. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you see this all the time with the way that language has become so important. We have to police language now because there's this thought that, you know, oh, well, if we just change the words, we'll change reality. Like if someone doesn't have a, a word for something and we just obliterate that from our conceptions, then th this will lead in, you know, uh, some miraculously better world. And um, so there is very much like that, that, that kind of, you know, the way that we are tone 
policing and word policing and uh, and canceling each other and sort of not engaging with these ideas at the and, and sort of just cutting off conversation at that level is a direct uh, outgrowth of a certain worldview which says that we create reality uh, and so if we can change people's minds then we'll change reality um, mm-hmm. and uh, so obviously that is misguided and 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 not entirely true right but there's a kernel of truth to it like we can change the way we speak about things and maybe that would have a moderately better impact on society um so again it's just this escape from either or thinking of like we have to choose one side of this polarity um when in fact what i can i see is very emblematic of all metamodern thought as sort of this continual um moving between uh these different Mm. polarities and this is a sense of what the word meta means actually meta can mean between and one of the ways that the original dutch theorists used the term related directly to that is that the the metamodern mind is always oscillating is the word that they use between sort of these postmodern views of things and these modern views of things. Um, and, uh, and for the record too, I, I think also it's important for the context of this conversation, not just the modern, I mean, like, let's say other cultural logics it's oscillating between on the one hand, it can kind of take that social constructivist angle, but then, you know, when that starts getting too extreme and just sort of ridiculous in terms of where it falls apart with reality, then it can kind of reaffirm that, well, no, there is something here, right. But there's this back and forth that's sort of continually setting those different lenses uh, in relationship to each other so that you're getting some dynamic third thing rather than just, you know, one of these two extremes. Um, so I think, yeah, you see that you, th- you see that um, in all areas of sort of, you know, this metamodern shift. Do you think maybe I'm just kind of spitballing here at the top of my head as we're talking. Do you think there's any any possibility that maybe what we have learned is as we look at the kind of Hegelian, here's the synthesis, here's the antithesis. And we've seen as we've gone back that how strongly people have said the antithesis is the truth, mm. you know, up against the synthesis that maybe what metamodernism is trying to do is trying to like pre- predict in advance where the where the new synthesis is going to land, mm. uh, maybe by doing that oscillation between the thesis and the antithesis. In this case, it would be the primary, primary thesis and anth- antithesis of modernism and metamodern or postmodernism, right? So modernism and maybe even going before that, the, mm-hmm. the traditional storytelling, traditional yes. worldview, that you have that sort of thesis, postmodernism being the antithesis and metamodernism obviously seeking to find the, the, the synthesis in advance uh, instead of just letting this collision maybe devolve into a, a total state of, of war and anarchy and complete mm. disillusionment. Um, do you think there's any merit to that, sure. that possibility? Yeah. I mean, um, I think that, I think it's a very helpful way of thinking about it, that it's, it's becoming aware of the dialectical nature of this is a, a, at least the crucial part, right? Um, if you are only able to conceive of, of opposite binaries, um, you're you're in a different position if you're able to cognize oh i'm (laughs) between a rock and a hard place i'm between two opposite poles um and they might actually relate to one another and they might actually maybe even sort of complement each other or have a kind of opponent processing factor that maybe Mm. you know and once you're in that mindset you're you're i think already you've already made that that move and i think you're right i mean there's a, a anticipation factor of like okay well then what does it look like to sort of you know 
bring together these seemingly opposite things. Um, so anyway, that, that's a very helpful framing. There are all sorts of ways of framing it. Um, right. And I don't want to reify any particular one as a, like, this yeah. is the right meta modern yeah. because there's a, there are these dynamics that are very deep and um, we can represent them in different ways. Right. Modern or uh, thesis antithesis synthesis is one way of doing mm. that, but we can also do, you know, more traditional Hegelian dialectics. We can talk about, um, you know, uh, basically things going meta on themselves, or I talk about eternal recursion, the sort of continual standing back and self-reflecting um, mm. on what was before. But um, but I think broad what they all gesture to, right, is that um, is that it's aware of the fact that we are presented with these contraries and uh, mm -hmm. and building that into the perspective itself. That like perspectives are often mediating um, what came before in terms of seeming opposites, and they need to uh, you yeah. know ideally bring these together and find where they can productively relate to one another. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, can we circle back around because when you're talking about, I think the the desire to uh, to find meaning outside of the self in something, I, I, I don't want to go as far as to say objective truth, but to, to ground it in a, um, let's say, let's say using other philosophical language, the recognition that I am not necessary, but I am contingent and I'm mm. dependent on some other necessary mm. necessity beyond mm -hmm. myself. I think that is part of the awareness that there are, um, there are forces at play and this is where, for me, I wanted to circle back around yeah. to what you're talking about, because it seems like this this dance that Verveke has been talking about for quite mm -hmm. some time between yeah. emergence and emanation, right? So emanation being kind of like the top down, the, the thing outside of ourselves that provides the the, the constraints, the, the playground, if you will, for which we can conform um, and, and have that bottom-up causality. But the bottom-up causality isn't that, and I think... This is really, I know this is going to sound for some of my listeners like we're getting too far into the, the philosophical weeds here, but yeah. I, I do think there are practical, existential, daily life stuff connected to this. Mm. That if we see ourselves as having nothing outside of ourselves to conform to, like mm. there's no reality, there's no playground, there's no fence to inhabit, there's no space, there's no container mm -hmm. to be poured into that uh, it creates what, again, like Verveke has called combinatorial explosion, mm -hmm. which is part of our problem. Like we feel like we can, uh, I don't know if you follow any of like, uh, what's his name? Byung Chul Han. Mm -mm. Uh, and any of his work at all? Um, golly, I'm I'm drawing a blank on his on his book titles, um, but he's talked about this uh, this this shift into uh, an achievement society, mm -hmm. an achievement society in which we feel the constant need to optimize ourselves. But the problem is that we have endless, mm. seemingly endless options for optimization. Mm -hmm. So there aren't constraints. And we feel like as part of our narrative, we can make ourselves whatever we want, but we don't know what good thing to make yeah. ourselves to. Yeah. So there's like a, there is the recognition of some sort of top down constraint, top down a thing to adhere to. Yeah. Is that a fair way of maybe assessing what some of what the yeah. meta modern impulse is to find some proper container mm -hmm. while still recognizing the critiques of postmodernism that I recognize. And I tell this to people, Brendan, like I'm a pastor. I recognize that if I was born in Somalia, I would, the, the statistical likelihood of me being a Christian pastor is 
infinitesimally small. I recognize I was born into the story. I'm self-aware of the story, but I am also trying to be honest about, okay, given that I can't live without a story, I have to adhere to some structure and I'm earnestly searching to allow myself to adhere to some structure that I see is true. I'm not trying to be blind to it. Um, it seems like what I've noticed in our generation is like the tiredness, the exhaustion of nothing but cynicism, mm -hmm. uh, nothing but irony, irony that isn't like leading to sincerity. And we have this new impulse that goes, all right, I'm still going to use my ironic language, mm -hmm. but I am trying to find a container. Like yeah. I'm trying to yeah. find the, the top down force that I should adhere to. Right. Yeah. So, Okay. This will get a little trippy, maybe, and maybe it'll Let's be a little it. weird. Get, All right, so get trippy. So I, I remember this episode of Boy Meets World, uh, where yes, let's um, go there. Yeah, oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, yeah. Um, and all right. So in this episode, uh, it's the older brother. I want to say his name is Will, but maybe that's the name of the actor. Uh, I forget What's the name that? of the uh, older brother, but um, is it Eric. Eric, yes, yeah. Eric, uh, yeah. Corey's older brother goes off to Hollywood to because he's like, gotten into acting. And while he's there, he stars in a in a television sitcom um, pilot called uh, uh, "Kid Gets Acquainted with the Universe." All right, and in on the set, right, it's it's all the same characters from Boy Meets World, but they're like they have slightly different names, and he's playing a character you know named Derek or something, right? So it's this. It's and sorry. So this is you what you would call going meta, okay? And on some way, right? Now, when you watch this, you're like this is a spoof. It's a joke. It's sort of like a there's no way to it, it they're being cheekily self-aware, right? And they're breaking the fourth wall and all this stuff and all these things have characteristic elements of postmodern art. You see this a lot in postmodern art of just being very hyper self-conscious. Um where the where where a book becomes about reading the book, right? That sort of a thing, or like you know the 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 author is telling you that he's writing the current uh, sentence that he's writing, right? These are all meta moves that you find in kind of classic postmodern works of art, and a lot of the kind of uh, immediate takeaway from some of that stuff, right, is oh, okay, yeah, all this stuff is kind of just silly and it makes me very aware of this thing. It's sort of, I, I don't even have the illusion of like, you know, suspension of disbelief. I'm just like, it's putting it all in my face. It's a construct. It's not real, all of that. And that can be sort of disenchanting and disillusioning and, and sort of, yeah, then you're kind of being ironic, okay? But now here's where I, I want to kind of get a little trippy with this. Um, then you kind of really go with it and then you work with that move because you do see it is a move like that's what postmodern art is doing all the time in all sorts of things um you know like uh what the, the the simpsons have other television shows on that like dinosaurs or family guy that they have send-ups of because they're like hey wow these guys are so much like us right it's sort of like okay we're going to do this meta move right so this is a move but once you see that it's a move you have a new enduring container right you have a mm. new thing that exists and so then you can say oh well what is the nature of that container well it's this recursive move that has a deep kind of structure to it and it repeats itself and it reflects on itself now once you have that you're like this is a real thing right i'm not just like we've deconstructed something but we've deconstructed it using a thing that is not deconstructed <laughs> you know it's a real mm -hmm mental move that you make 
uh, that that is it's the container for deconstruction. You see what I'm saying? Yes, so it's yes, like yes. you've gotten beyond deconstruction, meta deconstruction, because you're actually seeing the very container that deconstruction needs to even be able to do what it's doing. And once you're there, you can start to say, hey, there are things that exist outside the context of just infinite, you know, sort of uh, cultural constructivist deconstruction. There are the, the, the containers in which these things happen. And that provides a new kind of solid ground to work with. But you have to go through it to get there. You have to deconstruct in order to get out outside of the container. So what I posit is that this postmodern moment is very much where we're still stuck in the deconstructing move. We haven't kept going. We haven't gotten beyond it. And so we're stuck with the disenchantment and the disillusionment and the cynicism and the irony. But if you keep going, then that is that very stuff is what allows you to find a new kind of meta level container. So that would be a, a way of beginning to think about the sorts of moves that go into um, these sorts of things. And I can say more about meaning as sort of a, you know, a similar move, but that would just be one way of framing it. Okay. So then if metamodernism is trying to find the container that holds the deconstruction. Yeah. <laughs> is that a fair way of summarizing that in some yeah, sense? Yeah, I think, like, it's I mean, like, <laughs> as I say, right, meta, all metamodernisms or, or the metamodern quintessentially is about going beyond postmodernism by means of mm -hmm. postmodernism. So yeah. whatever you're going to find on the other side is going to be somehow a meaningful product of postmodernism, but it's going to also transcend it as well. Um, and so this is a, a classic example of how that would work because you have to go through the deconstruction process to then find the new stable structure. I wouldn't go so far as to say that all forms of metamodernism are somehow about trying to do this. Yeah. I think that this is a, yeah. this is, this is, and I do, I mean, this is the case I'm making in my book because it, to talk about a cultural logic of cultural logics is kind of where you get on, you know, get to on the other side of this stuff is that you see that, um, oh, there's a structure to how cultural logics themselves evolve, right? So metamodernism is also about this move in the sense that it's aware of how this process unfolds. So it's able to see that, oh, postmodernism is actually a necessary step in this process because it's it's key to how this whole thing operates. But then you're able to contextualize that and you're able to relativize relativism. You know, you're able to be mm -hmm. skeptical of skepticism and you're able to deconstruct deconstruction because you put it in a wider frame. Um, so that to me seems to be like a really necessary, you know, way of thinking about all this. And when I synthesized all the different ways people were talking about post, uh, metamodernism, that is sort of the underlying structure to all these different kinds of discourse seems to be this basic move. So that, that is the, the, the basic idea. Um, and I think what I would say though, so, um, I, I want to tie this into the meaning issue, which I, I think would be valuable. But I also recognize that there's a lot there's a lot to all this. So I don't know if we want to, you know, get a little bit sure first. Yeah, no, I, I no, I'd like I'd like to talk about that. The, the the only other pressing question I have, Brendan, and you can pick which one you'd like to address first, is thinking about what sorts of implications that this getting at the core of cores, the <laughs> container of containers, <laughs> what what this what this shift, this impulse, what kind of impact it has on uh, like traditional religion mm -hmm. in America. Yeah. Um, because I've wondered how much of the, uh, the, the shift towards a uh, little autobiographical 
and then you can choose which way you sure. want to take this you know so i think back to my parents my parents who were um, my dad was raised kind of nominally catholic my mom was raised devoutly catholic they saw that in some sense as the thesis with mm -hmm. all of the flaws that they perceived in that thesis. And then when they got into their early adult years, they they chose this kind of new thing at the time, which was this born again, mm -hmm. Billy Graham, yep, yep. evangelical experience, very personal. So we're going to move away from, you know, at the, at the time there were already shifts happening because it's post-Vatican II from Latin mass, yeah. but they want to hear the Bible in their native tongue. And they want to read Bible translations that sound like their cultural context. And the music that's going to happen in church isn't organs and from the medieval times. <laughs> there's not doing the smells and bells. We're mm -hmm. not doing that stuff. We actually want to communicate with the cultural vocabulary mm -hmm. of our day. And so they very much grew up in that. Um, I'm a product of that. But I see a lot of people that their parents went through that sort of change. Mm -hmm. And then they grow up. And then they go to like Eastern Orthodoxy or <laughs> yeah. Catholicism yeah. or, you know, the, the yeah. more high church liturgical expressions. Now, I, there's a lot of different ways we could frame that, but I, I'm, I'm really wondering how much of that, you know, is that simply kind of, you can kind of see these re recurring patterns throughout time of people going, hey, you know, I, I came from this and uh, I want to go back to something before that. Is that metamodern? What what sorts of impacts do you see yeah. as these stories disseminate in through popular culture as the aesthetic changes and those aesthetic changes begin to impact not just guys like you and me who are reading this stuff and uh, not to pat ourselves on the back, but we're not normal <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to like picking up on these trends. I would like to think that I'll, I'll speak of you that you're very much on the front end of this this, this bleeding edge and this, um, I, I don't think if you asked your average person on the streets, like what metamodernism is, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I have no, I have yeah. no idea. Um, so as that moves more into the mainstream and moves into the broader culture, what sorts of impacts do you see it having on traditional religion? And, yeah. you know, feel free if you feel like that connects to what you want to say about yeah, the pursuit yeah. of meaning. No, it's good. Sure. There is something there. Yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that one. And it's so interesting too, because you described that whole thing you described. I have direct experience with that as well. Um, you know, mm. my, my, uh, previous, well, my fam, my, my parents basically had that experience, grew up in, you know, mainline churches, found the evangelical thing because it was the antithesis to the thesis. Um, mm. and I was that next generation that was very fascinated by Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Um, I mean, one thing I'll say is, you know, they say that every problem looks like a nail to a hammer, right? So I'm a metamodern right. thinker. So there, there's a danger of trying to interpret all these sorts of patterns and culture as somehow, you know, whatever. And I don't want right. to, I don't, I don't want to yeah, yeah. way, Brendan, this is what I called you here for. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I, I want to avoid the trap of, you know, of, of doing that. I will say, though, there there's an interesting way, right, about how like the attraction, say, to Eastern Orthodoxy after coming from an evangelical context is different than if you made the reverse move. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, yes. It's because, cool. right, like I, I do think that there's this metamodern aspect here in which there's a deep pragmatism as well that I think informs a lot of metamodern thought, which is it stems from the same insight, right? Of like, well, we got to live with some story, right? You know, so it's sort of like a pragmatic realization that you're 
are between a rock and a hard place and you just got to choose because you got to get on with your life and you have to have some meaning in it. Um, so there is a pragmatism there. And I think that there is a kind of attraction to certain kinds of religiosity from the standpoint of, damn it, I want to be religious, you know, and I, it's almost like, you know, I don't want to say it's as flippant as, you know, uh, flip a coin literally, but there's some sense of like, I need this element in my life and I want to choose this and I'm attracted to these aesthetics. Right. Um, and so I will engage with this thing because it gives me this value, but that's a very reflective stance to like adopt a religious tradition for. It's very different if you were to grow up in the tradition itself and just like get the experience of this is the truth and this is the way that reality is. You'd have to deconstruct that before you'd even be able to get in the position where you could authentically, agentially, volitionally choose the thing that you're in. And oftentimes, to be fair, a lot of the places that we're coming from, we're often trying so hard to distance ourselves from that it's going to be very unlikely that we're going to end back in the place once we've done all that work that we have done so you know much to get away from. Though some people do, and I could very well conceive of you know uh, a situation where people uh, leave, um, or let's say that people find a just well that people find a form of the religiosity that I left and affirm it from a metamodern standpoint for all the reasons that we're talking about. But you have to see, and the point I'm making is that they're different then, right? That it's it's a yes. different, and a lot of it has to do with the degree of reflection, uh, which is, again, the sort of recursive reflection and this reflective move that we're always doing with things. It's sort of, we're learning from them. We're able to take them as an object of analysis. We're able to, you know, not just look through our glasses, but look at our glasses and then go from that vantage, right? So I think a lot of, you know, the move here is when you grow up, when you're enculturated and when you're, when you're learning things like your whole formative period of life for the first, say 20 years, a lot of it is just being taught how to see through a certain pair of glasses. Right. And, um, and then, and then in time, you might very well come to realize that that way of seeing isn't complete, that it is a pair of glasses that you can take off and analyze. And then you do that for a while. And maybe that occupies a lot of your, you know, I don't know, early 20s and whatever. But then eventually you're like, okay, yep, that's how this whole thing works. And, you know, you know, now it's like, which pair of glasses am I going to wear and why? That's and right. Because you that, can't go without that lens. Yeah. There's always the interpretive lens. So the awareness of that to me yeah. seems like a differentiating factor between right. just like... I'm leaving this thing because I'm upset or I'm, I'm hurt for valid reasons or non-valid reasons, whatever the case may be, and I'm running away from this thing. That seems very different than going, oh, I've taken off my glasses. I realize I have an interpretive lens. Mm -hmm. And then you go and you take that one set off and then you put on another pair and then you realize, oh, shoot, wait, this is also has yes. these filters. Yes. Right. Yes. Now, now, now this, this is where things start to become very interesting as well, though, because all right, a couple things here. Let's say I have some rose colored glasses on. Right. And I'm like, oh, yes, the world is so rosy. Now, of course, I wouldn't say that because everything is rosy. So it's all contextually viewed through that lens. Right. right? But then someone comes around and they tell me, hey, actually, you're just viewing through a pair of rose colored glasses. And to the degree that I don't just immediately shoo them away because they're challenging my sense of reality and get very defensive about that and actually take it seriously. Then I might go through the whole thing of like learning to take them off, look at them find another pair over here and this has a green lens and then try those on right and i think that i guess one of the things i want to say is one that movement i think is the movement from sort of naive traditionalism or naive religiosity into a sort of modern critical stance where we're able to take religion itself as a, as a subject as, a, as an object of, of criticism and, and study and so that would be 
starting to do this, right? And then the postmoderns come along and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, but here's all these other glasses you could choose from. And so, so it's all relative, right? It's all totally random, right? Now, here's where the thing really starts to click, I think, is that then once you take that seriously, you're like, wow, there are all these different kinds of glasses I could be wearing. And then you say, I can put them all on and I can compare them. I can put them all on and adjudicate between them. Some of them are, are showing aspects uh, better than others, maybe. Maybe some prescriptions closer to my eyes or whatever. Uh, there are certain aspects in which I'm getting new elements of what is there through different kinds of glasses. But even bigger than that, one becomes aware of this whole meta move, that it's the case that we're all wearing glasses. We can all become aware of it. We can all take them off, study them, and then see the ways in which we're wearing various forms of glasses. And that that then becomes, you could say, a new set of glasses that seems like it's absolute, that you're now you're looking through the world through the lens of lenses, right? You're, you've got a cultural logic of cultural logics, because that that's what this is. It's sort of like, what, it, what are these different lenses? Well, there are different religions, there are different uh, ideologies, but more than that, there are different sort of um, uh, degrees of 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 perspectival awareness you could even say and so you start to see that what all of these things have in common is that it's better to have more knowledge of more glasses and to be able to go through the process itself of adjudicating that and that there's something that feels closer to like truth about that whole right. meta process right and so you're able that would then allow you that yeah, would allow on. you to have some sort of comparison comparison if you say as I've tried on 12 different sets of glasses, I notice some similar features right. shared. Right. Maybe that's pointing to some, you know, core of cores uh -huh. <laughs> here that, that actually is revealing something that is true across these perspectives. Right. There's, there's not only the fact that you can then compare perspectives and see what they have in common and then be in a better position to say, you know, well, that's real. And I think to some degree, modernism is already kind of engaged in projects like that. But I think what's even the bigger move is seeing that there's this meta pattern of lens analysis. You know what I mean? That, 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 mm, that the yes, whole yes. thing itself provides a way to adjudicate between perspectives. And because, right, when you put on a pair of glasses and you can't see that people are wearing glasses, those glasses aren't telling you as much about reality as a pair of glasses where you put them on and you do see that, right? This is where the analogy falls apart a little bit because glasses can't do all this, but you understand <laughs> what I'm saying, right? That there's something intrinsically valuable about the art of deconstructing a worldview in a, in a perspective in order to then see beyond it and then to get to the meta perspective of seeing the process of worldview con construction and deconstruction itself, which then provides you some, some solid thing that you can compare all worlds to, if that makes sense. So that gives you this meta pattern that's sort of a new rubric or a new measure or universal scale or something, right? Um, and, and this is what I mean when I talk about meaning and, and the complexification of meaning and all this stuff, because this is, uh, this is something quite different than, you know, oh, we all just live in a story, so we might as well choose one, which is still very inflected by postmodern relativism to, well, we've gone through postmodern relativism, and now we're able to relativize it within a broader process that is sort of a still actually universal process. Um, now, hopefully, one, people are with me on any of this, and it's making sense. Two, I want to qualify that as well, because I don't uh, immediately once you see that this is this process, you, you see that 
it keeps going, right? There's no clear end to this process. It has a kind of trans self-transcending quality to it. Um, and so there should be some epistemic humility that we have here that even though we have this sort of universal scale of like, well, how many perspectives can we, can we see? And that that's real and that that's not just, oh, you know, whatever you want to believe. Um, we also shouldn't say that even this whole perspective won't be transcended in some other meta meta level where we put on a new set of glasses. And I, I can understand how that might make people uncomfortable because it seems like the, the solid ground that we just got from this sort of thing is right. now immediately then torn out from under us. But I also want to invite people to think about this as a mystery, as the mystery of mm -hmm. reality um, that uh, I think personally I see as a sacred process. And when I start mm -hmm. marrying this idea of how the development of knowledge works and the connection with reality to cer for certain forms of apophatic, you know, mysticism, uh, there's fascinating connections there to be made in, in terms of like an eternally disclosing world, a, a reality that is becoming more and more uh, clearly known by people, even as it's also always receding away in, in this ultimate mystery, which I think is, uh, you know, you know, if you're a believing person, shouldn't be any great discomfort either. There's just, there is sort of this, and so this is this is what I want to tie back into the emanation bit, you know. So what I'm talking yeah. about is emergence. Every time you mm -hmm. take off the the glass and come to this whole new conception of reality, you've like gone through an emergent phase shift and you're seeing things in like a totally different way. Things have new your knowledge has been restructured and reorganized and you, you've got a new, you know, that's emergence. It's that's bottom up kind of self trans transcendence. But there is this thing that's sort of on the other end of this whole process that we're moving towards in doing that. And that's the emanation bit. And that's a lot harder to speak about, right? And that's where I want to locate that emanation aspect. And you can call that God. Um, you can use, you know, the imagery of, of the Bible to talk about it. Um, and you can, and I think, I think we should draw on the, uh, experience of the mystics and, uh, the mystical literature, especially in the Christian tradition to think about this. Uh, mm -hmm. uh but I, I think that that's, that's the, that's the mystery of it to me. And, uh, I think where, where this st stops being a purely sort of, cultural analysis or kind of epistemological yeah. speculation and starts to become a kind of devotional relationship to the, uh, the ground of being and the infinitely self emanating uh, abundance of the, the fullness of the one or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. So with that mystery, there's maybe a couple different existential responses to that, um, to the confession of the ultimate transcendence of the ground of being, mm. right? That there is in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, you, you, you're, you're more apt to use the apophatic language of what God is not than what he is so mm -hmm. that you don't, uh, you don't constrain the possibilities of the transcendent. And mm -hmm. yet there's a real problem there with combinatorial explosion, mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. decision fatigue and a sense mm -hmm. of decision paralysis, where you can get to the point where the mystery becomes so grand that you don't know where to take a first step. Mm. And I think that's, that would be a concerning feature of, okay, so the metamodernism, the metamodern shift, if you accept some of these uh, presuppositions, if you accept where, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for? If you accept where the, because it's not even just, I, I don't want to reduce this to like, here are here are propositional, here's propositional knowledge about mm -hmm. the world, you know, because it's very much connected to when you watch these core core videos, for example, it's not propositional. It's, it's a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> it's a vibe. It's a vibe. Yeah. So where's the vibe? <laughs> where's yeah. the vibe leading you? I'm, I, I'm very optimistic about the possibility that in this moment, people are very open to positive reconstruction. 
Mm. That for me is like a mm. win, but mm-hmm. I'm also confessing my convictional location on this as, mm. as somewhat of a, a Kierkegaardian Christian in that I'm like, yes, there is something, there's something at the edge of this dock, you know, and this is maybe to yeah. use another a metaphor or picture that we can, let's say, take a, 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 the reasons for uh, believing that there is something positive to reconstruct. Yeah. into that there is a core of cores that yeah. there's a container of containers no i, I think I, I think i know what you're getting at so well and yes. i don't want to interrupt you though so please finish your thought but i, I think okay, I know. so let me just yeah. let me yeah. throw this out there then to you brendan then you can please provide your your feedback and comments on it but uh for me the, the way i picture it is the sense that um there there is enough uh general revelation to use my Christian theological language to lead me to as like what Paul would argue in Romans one, that God's invisible attributes are are on display within the material world that's been created. And there's enough reason to believe that there is a core of cores. There's a container of containers. Mm. There is, and you could go through all the Aristotelian, you know, the five, five reasons of Augustine for, Mm. or not Augustine of Aquinas for and Aristotle for believing in all of that stuff, but it still leads you to this point uh, of which rationality is not enough that you have to enter into the supra rational. Yeah. And this for me is, uh, as again, kind of a Kierkegaard uh, yeah. disciple, this yeah. is where that leap of faith from the edge of the dock into the ocean that stands yeah. in front of you is the only way that you can know whether or not you will swim Yeah, is when you actually move from here are the propositions that I've been built upon. And now I have to actually like give of myself. And so for like Kierkegaard, this is the only way that one actually truly comes to know Christ, to mm. know God is in that decisive leap of faith, the actual movement. So I think you're probably tracking with me on this, Brendan. The, the question then for some that come out of this and they go, I want to reconstruct. I want to positively reconstruct. Where do I take the leap? Is there mm. a leap? You know, it, with that leap also comes the risk. I don't want to leap into the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, I still have to hold to the, the what we've learned from postmodernism that maybe that story I'm leaping into is just yeah. simply masking a play for power. I think the one for me, Brendan, I, I have no problem talking about this. This is me confessing that I know I'm situated in a story is like, you know, the Nietzschean critique that this is nothing more than slave morality. It's a it's a poignant critique. You know, that this story is a great story if you want to remain on the underside and the bottom side of history all the Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. And so to encourage people in my vocation to take that leap, I I take it very, very seriously, you know. Um, So mystery, the searching for the core of cores, the meta beyond the meta. Yeah. How do we move beyond the sense of paralysis and decision fatigue? into actually stepping into something that we could positively reconstruct name that we're positively constructing, yeah. or are we just kind of stuck with our same old epistemology problems? I think there's a couple of related questions in there and I'll tackle one first and it might answer all of them. I'm not sure, but um, I actually love this image of the core of cores. Uh, so we'll take that in a very sincerely ironic way and like really run with it. Okay. So like imagine a mandala, right? It's sort of a series of concentric circles, right? Um, and when you think about that structure, 
um, you can see that it's sort of like a, you know, you can also think of it in sort of a Venn diagram way that like, you know, what's at the center is sort of in all of the things, right? Now, if you think about this complexification thing I've been talking about, and which relates directly, by the way, to being able to see more and more perspectives and more and more lenses, um, that you see that the complexification of meaning gets us to these places. And so we're taking in more and more perspectives. But then the question is, what's the core of cores? If there were a core of cores, then we would have good cause to, let's say, always be able to rest in something. Uh, I want to yes. come back and qualify this in a second. But what I want to suggest is love. Uh, it's not. I don't think of this so much as a leap of faith, which for me still rings with all this propositional logic and maybe even some kind of relational, interpersonal logic or something. Um, but love is the vibe. Uh, okay, you know, love is the vibe, and and. What I mean by that is that it, it, it's true at all levels, right? Uh, that there's no point where you can get to the complexification of something or you get to a new perspective and all of a sudden you're totally justified to be an asshole, <laughs> you know, doesn't work that way. There's like, you can go down to the most, you know, simple, uh, or pure or whatever kind of, you know, language you want, you want to use for this kind of, uh, even very naive faiths and you'll find agape and eros and other kinds of love, philos, all, but you'll find this sense of connection, of harmony, of moving, of wanting to bring together and to unite. And, you know, then you can start getting into theologies of love and everything, which Kierkegaard did too. Um, but, uh, but, but that, but you can also then zoom out, right. And you can also see that there's this, this operates too at like, you know, these levels that we're talking about of metamodern self-reflexive recursivity and all this stuff. But it's like, we're still engaged in an, in a, in a connection that uh, is not lost or torn asunder by the complexification of it all. Um, and that actually, as you're able to see more and more of reality and see more and more perspectives and more and more of the truth. And as that reality discloses itself to you and you have more pieces and parts to work with, the love is what is binding all those pieces together so that you're seeing just more and more of the way that love, you know, as Dante would say, you know, uh, uh, causes the, uh, the planets to, to, uh, to dance around the stars. Um, so that would be my initial answer is that the vibe is love and the core of cores is love. Um, and, and that you can think about that as being the thing that binds a little together. Now, fascinating or maybe bizarre as it may sound, this was something I've got from synthesizing metamodernisms, at least, you know, uh, what I would, a pattern I was picking up in a lot of people talking about this. You've got Alexander Dumitrescu talking about, you know, this sort of kindness and Jacob's ladder. You've got Vermeulen and von Doniker talking about uh, Eros and sort of the metaxi binding the different finite and infinite. Um, you've got, you know, the Hansi Freinach stuff and the, and the whole complexity aspect of this really kind of filling in this neo-Aristotelian leveled ontology um, and connecting that to psychology in the ways that this sort of complexification leads to increasing degrees of uh, embrace, I guess, is what Susan Cook Reuter would call it, but the increasing levels of intimacy and connection with other people. Um, and that that becomes sort of the telos, you could say that like, whatever that is, is simultaneously the core of cores, but it's also that that emanating reality that's sort of unfolding more and more of itself. And that somehow in the great, you know, paradoxical vision of the mystics, the, 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 the center is also their circumference, you know, and the, and the, the origin is also the, uh, the destination. 
So that would be kind of a meta-modern mystical response to that question, um, which I think is begins more immediately from like a practical concern of like how then yes. you know how then shall we live our lives sort of a thing. Um, so the first answer I think is just sort of like well you know and this is the end uh, or one of the great takeaways of that meta-modern film I mentioned uh, everywhere everything everywhere all at once, uh, which is be kind, be kind especially when you don't know what's going on. And we don't know what's going on. And we can expect that we should always have our lenses ripped from our faces and we see a whole new level of reality and that our senses of ego and worldview get deconstructed and we've got to rebuild. There's always so much that we don't know and this profound uncertainty and the chaos that's beyond our minimal complexity to be able to make sense of. So that's always going to be the case, but there's always this enduring sense of be kind. And if you can start there, then you're probably doing the most important thing. And then we can, you know, talk about whether any of the other stuff makes any sense. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. That does remind me of what Aquinas argued that caritas was the the highest mm. virtue, mm. Uh, that there was, there was some superlative virtue up above all of them. And I do think um, at the end, you know, maybe, maybe this is kind of still kind of like an, an, an existentialist wager here that I, I've always looked at that, Brendan, and gone, all right, what would be the worst? And maybe this is some sort of like Pascal's wager sort of deal here. But mm -hmm. what, what would be the worst that would come of my life if I actually gave myself in love to seeking the good of the mm -hmm. other when I encounter them. Mm. And if I made that, and if I actually trusted that at the core of cores, you know, that that was the thing that brought everything to be mm. was a desire to connect a desire for communion. And at the very center of it was loving communion. I mean, mm. there's certainly, I'm not saying Christianity is the only story that has that, but I, I do look at that and go, these are the sorts of things that for me, Brandon, I go, all right, I'm very aware that I'm in a story, but this one, at least on those levels, it matches up for me, right? And if at mm. the end, I end up being wrong, um, I, I think I still, I don't think I would have as many regrets mm. as if I rejected that premise, I rejected the way of love, I rejected seeking the good of the other, if I rejected that and pursued my own selfish ends, I think and I've been bedside for people who, mm. <coughs> pardon me, in those dying moments of life and have been bedside with people that have given themselves to that. And uh, if in the end, it's just all, you just you head into the void mm. and uh, that, what, what, what was it in everything, everywhere all at once, the... The, the the everything, everything bagel, bagel of yeah yeah the everything bagel of nothingness if that yeah. just consumes us all in the end i know there's a point in which you know the apostle paul argued you know if there is no resurrection then you know we are to be pitied among all people and i'm i'm pretty much an idiot for giving my life to this but i still think there's probably something of um a pascalian mm. wager that not 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 the way it's often used in yeah. clichés but the sense that what you're talking about i don't know but I know the difference in my life when I've given myself to my ego versus giving myself to truly seeking the good of my neighbor 
those around me mm-hmm. of loving God and loving other people and, and, and believing that at, at the very core of cores that there is, you know, Stanley Grenz's book, Theology for the Community of God. This is his argument that, you know, one of the distinctions for the, the Christian story is the story of at the very core of cores, you have a communion within mm-hmm. a Godhead. And I'm not asking, you know, you to agree with that or uh, listeners to agree with that sentiment. But for, for me, I find that that picture compelling mm-hmm. that there is loving communion at the center in which we are being enveloped into. If in the end I'm wrong, I don't know what's, what's the worst that come of me, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know uh, yes, I, I, for me, the Kierkegaardian leap was really uh, a crucial transition moment in my life um, for getting out of nihilism. Um, let's say, and uh, I think that that leap, um, you know, Kierkegaard had a stage model, right, of, of faith, basically, of the other religious life. Yeah. And it begins in aestheticism and, you know, goes into the ethical realm and into religious religiosity. So he was using a stage model. And I, I think, I, I mean, I, I think that there's something about what he's talking about that actually does fit into like a certain stage approach to, to, uh, to the religious life. I think for me, where it resonates most, though, is it's, it's what you do when you're at the in the bottom of the abyss of nihilism, that to me is where you make the Kierkegaardian move. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find interesting about that though is part of what happens with those stage transitions is that by the time they've sort of played themselves out and gotten, they've sort of, there's like a seed there that then grows into something. And the thing it grows into is very different than the thing it was. That makes any sense. And so I, I think that while that, leap of faith move is crucial. I think that at least in my experience, it was doing that um, in that moment that then got me in a place where I could sort of climb out of the abyss and then look back and be like, Oh man, I used to be down in that abyss. Right. Mm. But I would never yeah. have been able to do that had I not made that leap of faith. And so in that new leap yeah. of faith, it, it was a, it was a genuine moment of, um, of actual nihilism really, because, and this is another interesting way in which, you know, uh, logics in a kind of Hegelian way, negate their own negation and then turn into different things. Right. Because nihilism itself gets you to a point where you can then affirm anything, including faith. <laughs> you can uh, become so meaningless in your life that you can then just choose meaning. Uh, and it's fascinating that if you actually do that and play that out, you can get out of that abyss, look down and be like, oh yeah, I used to believe in no meaning. That's wild. But you got there because you, you made a ladder for yourself and you climbed on top of yourself to get out. Or, you know, someone could say you were climbing on top of more than that. Um, so yeah, I guess the point I want to make is that I think that what you're describing is very real and important, but I think I want to encourage people too, that, um, I think that there's also something beyond the leap of faith that it's like you're leaping, uh, you do, you can, let's say, land somewhere that might not be an eternal landing place. Cause again, in the sort of endlessly shifting sands, right. That they do keep changing, but, but you do land somewhere and that the leap in retrospect becomes something different from that vantage than what it was when it was yes. initiated. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I wanted to make that point. Um, yes, that's great. I'm glad you bring that up, Brandon, cause that, that, there would be some confusion there for some that might think, uh, and maybe this is part of what we're processing in the metamodern age is like, is the answer simply to go back, mm. right? To go back, like re-enchantment is re-enchantment simply going back. Do we just need to somehow get back to the medieval right. worldview and mindset? And like, no, there's a yes. reason why yes. we had to come out yeah. of that. 
right? Yeah, and, exactly. And this isn't to this isn't to fall for the the trap of what well, we're the inevitability of progress. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm not suggesting that, but there is even within for for me the the Kierkegaardian model, and for me within the Christian story, there has to be a recognition of their perpet perpetual transcendent mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. of God. And so yeah. you have these signposts and you can't settle for the signposts lest they become the idol. Yes. Right. So yes. you move beyond that. Yeah. And there's a constant moving beyond, but it's not a, it, it's not a moving beyond that should lead you to feel like I could never take a first step. And I think yeah. that's the thing I'm trying to like work through and help people work through is like the first step out of the, the, the pit out of the abyss. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think that's where like John has been really, really helpful. I, I haven't been, um, I want to word this carefully. I, you know, I have my disagreements with, um, you know, kind of Peterson's, uh, maybe post daily wire kind of turn, mm, yep. but I think uh, Peterson's greatest strength was at least helping people go take the first step mm-hmm. out of the abyss. Yeah. Like there's an abyss there. Yeah. Like make a movement, you know, yeah. that, that is a kind of, that's Camus. That is kind of the existentialist impulse, like radically rebel against yeah. the abyss in some way. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this one might be, hopefully I've somewhat ingratiated myself, uh, but here's where maybe I become very um, uh, challenging as well, because like part of me sees the process itself as destroying our idols, which means sometimes, no, I'm not going to say sometimes, it means destroying various forms of Christianity, uh, maybe very, very precious forms, you know, those those earlier enculturated forms that we grew up with that was our place where we had a firm foundation Right. For me, the spiritual life and spiritual development is about being able to grapple with having your whole religious worldview crumble and then, you know, get out of that abyss onto a new place. But then also accept that, like, it's not like, okay, now I'm safe. Right. It's that if we really accept the eternally kind of self transcending aspect of the divine, then we have to take seriously that every solid ground is going to be, you know, liable to liable for deconstruction basically all right everyone at this point i'm going to stop and ask you a question do you agree or disagree with what brendan just said i had some disagreements maybe some points of agreement too and we continue on that discussion in the bonus section available to those who are supporting this podcast on patreon or for those that are doing youtube membership either way It's a great way to help keep this podcast and the work I'm doing afloat. So we have a really fascinating back and forth and exchange on this subject. I respond to Brendan's points here, his, the case that he's making, and I offer some disagreement. We have some back and forth, and I think it's actually really healthy. If you want to listen to all of that, just click the link in the description below and you'll get access to the full conversation as a special thanks for your support. Speaking of supporters, I can't do this work without the generous support of listeners just like you. I want to give an extra special thanks to the following patrons. Clint, Brandon, Brent, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, Jesse, John Mark, Josie, J. Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew B., Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Sarah R., Stephen H., and Tim B. 
Thank you all for your generous support. I know I say this every week and I mean it. Can't do this work without you. Thank you so much. And hey, to all of you, whether you're a patron or not, I love reading your comments, your questions, your points of agreement, your points of disagreement with what's been said. I love hearing all of it. This back and forth is how we learn and how we grow. So please reach out, leave me a message, leave a comment in the discussion forum on Patreon, send me a direct message or tweet or X at me. Is it Xing at me now? Is it posting at me? Gosh, I don't know. I feel so old and confused about this whole situation. So whatever we're going to call that new Elon Musk website, you can connect with me on there or on Instagram. Of course, as a patron, you can connect with me via direct message on Patreon, in the discussion forum, so many places. Now that I've overloaded you with options, I really don't care. I just want to hear from you. So reach out with your questions and your comments and your observations and even your disagreements. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.